0: The jetty and this is historian-splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. This is my fifth lecture on the Middle Ages and at this point I'm gonna start focusing in on specific topics in the Middle Ages and I'm going to start with the Crusades. Now I could have gone back and done uh, earlier subjects uh, but instead I'm going to start right here with the Crusades because I think it's important and it's a very timely subject right now. So this lecture is going to be about the beginning of the Middle Ages and it's going excuse me the beginning of the Crusades and it's going to try to answer the question why did the Crusades happen? Now with any huge movement uh, or any war there are always going to be many answers uh, to that question. But still, I'm going to try to distill down uh, the basic forces that were at work in medieval society that made this bizarre cataclysmic event happen. Why did hundreds of thousands of people very suddenly and unexpectedly set out on a really uh, insane mission uh, to a distant land where most of them had never been uh, and on, uh, with very little chance of success, realistically. The First Crusade was launched because Pope Urban II made a rousing uh, and powerful speech calling for an expedition to Jerusalem at the Council of Clermont, which was a church council in France, uh, in November 1095 so right at the in the beginning of the High Middle Ages and I'm going to talk about why did the Pope make this speech what made him think that this was a good idea to call for this sort of desperate uh, unrealistic uh, far-fetched military scheme Uh, I'm then gonna talk about what he actually said in the speech we don't know For certain, precisely what he said, we only have later accounts, but we can reconstruct reasonably well some of the things he probably said, and then I'm going to talk about how people responded to it and why the speech actually worked. So, what had happened in Western Christendom in those hundreds of years leading up to the Council of Clermont? that made this bizarre idea of the crusade conceivable. Uh, Well, several developments had happened, which I've talked about before in other lectures. So some of these things will sound familiar if you've been listening to to the uh, earlier introductory lectures about the Middle Ages. One of them is simply demographic growth. Uh, The climate in Europe had gradually been warming from about the 800s through the 1000s. Productivity of farms was massively increasing. New land was being brought under cultivation. Much bigger and more reliable food surpluses uh, were available. And by 1095, uh, towns and cities were growing and there was now much more uh, mobile population around uh, beyond the basic peasant population that was needed to farm the land. So that made uh, sort of mass movements and concerted action much more conceivable than it would have been 100 or 200 years earlier. So that's one of the basic developments that we have to know uh, that made the Crusades possible. Another is geopolitical. Uh, It's fairly obvious. It's the ongoing uh, conflict between Islam and Christianity. Now Islam had arisen very suddenly and and unexpectedly in the Middle East uh, beginning in the seventh century and after the death of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, Muslim rulers had set out on a long spree of military campaigns invading and conquering neighboring lands. their goal was not to spread Islam per se uh, nor was it to convert uh, the people they conquered Uh, these military campaigns were for political and economic reasons. Uh, They wanted land, they wanted wealth and the spread of Islam and Islamic civilization was sort of a side benefit Uh, nonetheless these uh, Islamic armies very rapidly conquered most of the Middle East, including uh, Syria, Palestine, Egypt, uh, North Africa. And uh, finally, in the 8th century, uh, Muslim armies had actually invaded Western Europe when they crossed over into Spain and Portugal. Now, even at this point, uh, People at the time didn't necessarily see this as a clash of religions. They saw this as a clash of states and armies over territory and trade routes. Uh, However, the Carolingian rulers of the Frankish Empire in what's now France uh, had to rally their various subjects and allies and supporters to counter uh, the Moorish invasion that was coming into Europe. And they basically cast themselves as protectors of Christianity. Uh, So Charles Martel, Pippin the Short, Charlemagne, uh, they presented themselves as the defenders and leaders of the Christian world against the Islamic threat. And that's how they were able to successfully uh, solidify uh, their power and stop the Muslim advance from Spain into France. And it's really from this time forward that many Europeans uh, see their Christian loyalty as going hand-in-hand with opposition to Islam. And they start to see Christianity and Islam as sort of two clashing civilizations. Uh, And and that notion has lasted, of course, down to today in many people's minds. Uh, Nonetheless, In the ensuing centuries, you basically saw a sort of stalemate where Muslim powers held most of Spain and Portugal, Uh, the rest of Europe remained in Christian hands, Uh, you had a Christian Roman Empire in the east, what we call the Byzantine Empire, uh, holding on to power in the east, and you have uh, periods of peace and basically stability uh, with these Muslim and Christian civilizations existing uh, side by side that sort of balance of power is disrupted uh, very dramatically in the 11th century when a new Muslim power shows up on the scene and attacks both the existing Muslim states in the Middle East and the Byzantine Empire and that new power is the Turks okay so the Seljuk Turks uh, much like the the Huns centuries earlier uh, come out of Central Asia and, quickly spread across the steppes and westward uh, into Europe and the Middle East. Uh, They overthrow some of the Islamic states in areas like Syria and, and Iraq and they also invade the Byzantine Empire. In the year 1071 the Turks defeat the Byzantine army at the Battle of Manzikert. They capture the Byzantine Emperor and hold him for ransom, but eventually release him. With the defeat of these main Byzantine armies at Manzikert, uh, basically all of Asia Minor, most of what's now Turkey, uh, is simply opened up uh, to the Turkish onslaught. The Turks take almost all of of that country, except for a small area uh, on the Bosporus close to Constantinople. So they actually very quickly come to threaten uh, Constantinople and hence they threaten uh, what remains really of of the Roman Empire and they threaten that main bulwark uh, Christian power protecting Europe from Islam. The Byzantine emperors after the Battle of Manzikert write a long series of letters to the Pope, right, the leader of Western Christendom, basically imploring the Pope to send help. Uh, they want the Pope to organize some Western Christian Knights who by now are known for their fighting skills and, and prowess. Uh, to, they want the Pope to send uh, an away team of Knights to Constantinople to help defend what remains of the Eastern Roman Empire against the Turks. Uh, This was really a tall order because just journeying to Constantinople was very uh, expensive and risky and a a major undertaking, uh, let alone uh, being ready then uh, to fight and defend a city against the Turks. Uh, So for decades, the popes simply... uh, ignore these pleas or at best give them sort of half-hearted entertainment but don't they don't take action uh, nonetheless this threat of of the Turkish uh, advance towards Constantinople is on the minds of people in uh, Western Europe and it is one of the main reasons that uh, that the notion of a concerted crusade, uh, eventually comes to the pope's mind nonetheless why did the pope take this step not only of organizing knights but of calling for a kind of massive concerted expedition to the east in 1095 well it wasn't just to protect constantinople and the byzantines the idea of calling a military expedition uh also offered to possibly solve internal political problems within Western Europe. So Western Christian society was still terribly divided and in many ways dysfunctional, disorganized and there were all kinds of ongoing uh, disputes uh, that could be at least papered over, if not permanently resolved, by a concerted Military action under papal leadership. So one of these was the divide between Eastern and Western Christianity. So uh, there was a deepening split between the Eastern and Western churches. Uh, the Western church, of course, used uh, Latin as its sacred language, looked to Rome uh, for leadership, and had all kinds of doctrines and practices that differed from the Eastern Church, which used Greek as its language of liturgy and theology and looked to the Patriarch in Constantinople as its leader. Uh, And this uh, divide over how the church should work and who was ultimately in charge of the church had been getting worse and worse over the 11th century. Uh, In the year 1054, the Patriarch and the Pope Uh, got into yet another fight and actually excommunicated one another. So both uh, church leaders at this point looked at the other as a heretic. Now uh, we in retrospect call this, this fight which led to the Pope and the Patriarch excommunicating each other, we call it the Great Schism. But people at that time didn't necessarily see it as a schism. They didn't see it as a permanent institutional separation of the two churches, uh, ideally at least, there was still a chance that eventually the two leaders would reconcile and you would have a united cooperative Christian church. So uh, when the emperor pleaded with the pope to help save Constantinople, the promise, at least one of the promises that the Pope surely had in mind was that maybe if they did undertake some sort of expedition that successfully saved the Eastern capital, that then the church would be reunited under Western leadership. right? Uh, now, the Popes were also struggling at the same time with the secular royal powers within Western Europe. So there had been a long, uh, dispute, particularly with the Holy Roman Emperor over who had the, the power to choose and invest church officers who had the right to appoint bishops and priests and abbots and so forth, uh, the so-called investiture controversy. And, uh, the popes had been desperately fighting, uh, with royal, uh, royal authorities, the Holy Roman Emperors, also kings of France, kings of England, over these sort of uh, legal and political powers. And popes had excommunicated a lot of these kings and em- emperors as well. So you had kind of excommunications flying in all directions as people disputed, you know, who was head honcho in this, East, uh, in this Western Christian civilization. Uh, this dispute also promised to possibly be uh, resolved, or at least put into the background if, uh, if these secular rulers rallied together and united uh, behind the Pope's leadership in uh, a sort of grand cause of saving the East. Now, just to add insult to injury, the Pope who called the Council of Clermont Pope Urban was actually not the only Pope the western church was divided over who was the legitimate pope. Uh, And there was another pope called Clement who actually controlled most of Rome. So the pope who held the council in France, Pope uh, Urban, actually rarely set foot in Rome because he was not safe there. It was under the control of supporters of a rival pope. And this is the sort of thing that can happen when you have uh, an institution like the Western Church where councils elect the leader, uh, there can be all sorts of disputes over what's a legitimate council. Were enough people there? Was there a quorum? Was it called by a legitimate authority? Uh, did it operate according to legitimate rules? And so these councils could be sites of of disputes and confusion, and hence you could end up with disagreement over who was actually the legitimate pope. And that was the case with Pope Urban. He had a so-called anti-pope, a rival pope, always looking over his shoulder. So uh, again, calling for a crusade was a way that Pope Urban could possibly um, uh, settle this dispute and establish his legitimacy and loyalty to him as the real Pope. Now, lastly, there was a kind of ideological tension and conflict within Western Christian society. Uh, beyond these questions of who's the supreme authority, the Pope, the Emperor, the Patriarch, uh, there was also a an ongoing conflict over how people viewed war. So uh, the noble class in Western Europe was technically a warrior class and indeed many of the minor nobles all over Europe were knights. They were warriors trained to fight on horseback and uh, warfare was how they achieved glory and honor, it was how they achieved uh, wealth and it was what they were uh, born and, and bred and raised Uh, to do. At the same time, church teachings held violence and killing of any sort to be sinful. And they were constantly castigating these nobles to stop fighting each other, uh, to live as peaceful Christians. And if they did engage in war, to uh, confess, to uh, repent of their sins and, and perform penances for this violence. Uh, So this naturally caused a lot of psychological conflict uh, among this knightly class over exactly what they were supposed to be doing and whether warfare was uh, good or bad, honorable or sinful. This uh, uh, church leaders and commoners had sought to help resolve this ongoing tension through the so-called Peace and Truce of God movement, so a movement to set rules limiting whom nobles could attack and when, Uh, and various uh, sort of spontaneous councils had gathered, especially in cities in France uh, in the late 900s and on into the 1000s, which set up, uh, which proclaimed new rules saying that nobles, for example, could not attack peasants, could not attack church members, uh, women, uh, the aged, children, uh, basically limiting uh, nobles' uh, ability to fight anyone other than other armed nobles. And this had greatly reduced the sort of wanton raping and pillaging that had been going on through the Dark Ages. Uh, They also called uh, truces of God, which were uh, specific times of the week or the year when nobles could not fight. So sun, initially Sundays and major holidays like Easter and Christmas, then all kinds of other feast and holy days, uh, Lent, and eventually uh, several days a week were set aside when no fighting was allowed under this uh, truce of God. And we know that this movement to constrain uh, knightly warfare in Europe was very much at play uh, in the Council of Clermont when the Pope called for a crusade because the first action that the Council took when it convened at Clermont was to declare uh, that the truce of God applied from Thursday through Sunday. So that meant that at this point they were limiting fighting to only three days a week. Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. That's it. (laughs) Uh, So Not surprisingly, this presented a growing problem for people who had been trained and who made their living and their place in the world through fighting that uh, now most days of the year, they weren't supposed to fight according to uh, canon law. So this kind of need for an outlet for the warrior class to to fight, but do so without breaking uh, the teachings of Christianity in the church was a uh, was a great uh, was a great need at this time that again an expedition to a faraway land uh, offered to uh, to resolve. So we can see all of these kinds of uh, advantages, political advantages, and possible political and social rewards that the Pope and the Church could reap if they called for. Uh, an expedition for Western Christian fighters to venture out to the east and help protect the Byzantine Empire. Uh, Nonetheless, it was still a very risky idea. And what the Pope ended up doing was not just calling for a team to go help protect Constantinople, but he actually called for an expedition to recapture Jerusalem. And this even more than a mission to Constantinople. This was a really crazy, off-the-wall, unlikely uh, idea. And yet, uh, it seems Pope Urban decided that this was a high-risk but high-reward bargain and he took it. Now, why Jerusalem? Well, obviously Jerusalem has greater religious significance uh, than, than Constantinople does, but it had a particular kind of religious significance that fit uh, very tightly into the beliefs and practices of medieval Western Christianity in a way that made it much more powerful of a motivator than, uh, than Constantinople or the Eastern Empire. Okay, why? What, what was it about Western Christianity that made this idea of, a, of an armed expedition to Jerusalem so appealing and made it make so much sense, both to the Pope and to the followers that he inspired? Well, uh, Christianity at this time was built on a series of rituals and repeated practices. That were that really structured the religion. Remember, most people, even nobles at this time, were illiterate. So people's understanding of Christianity was not based on reading the Bible or reading religious texts. It was based on repeated uh, actions, right? Uh, words that are recited, uh, rituals that are performed, and. Uh, the sacraments of the Western Church had not yet been officially codified. That didn't happen till later in the 1200s. That they codified that there are seven sacraments, uh, but there were there was a whole variety of different uh, life cycle rituals uh, and uh, worship rituals that were considered sacraments, right? Holy actions, uh, and one of these was the sacrament of reconciliation. Uh, this the sacrament of reconciliation possibly was really the most important and the one that people invested the most time and thought into in the Middle Ages. So, what is the sacrament of reconciliation? Well, reconciliation basically is what you do when you've done something wrong, right? When you have sinned, and you have to reconcile with the Church. And uh, the sacrament of reconciliation, its origins go back to the Roman era, so it goes back to the time when you had secretive churches meeting in the Roman Empire, and Christians periodically would be persecuted, and whenever there was a wave of persecution of Christians, a certain number of them would abjure the faith, right? They would they would deny it. They would say, uh, "No, I'm not a Christian." Uh, they might uh, do things like make offerings to pagan gods. Uh, they would abjure their religion. Then after the persecution ended, those people often would come back and want to participate in the church again. And other Christians who had remained steadfast in the faith uh, disagreed with each other about whether you should allow those people back in. Right? Uh, if they have betrayed Christ, they've betrayed the faith, uh, should they be excluded and cast out of the church or should they be allowed back in? So this question of what do you do with people who have committed this serious sin of betraying the faith yet they are baptized Christians and they want to come back to the church well what church leaders, what a a sort of network of bishops decided was we need a process for these people to confess what they have done, show that they are sorry and then be accepted back into the church. So that's where the Sacrament of Reconciliation came from. And the basic process that they set up was that they have to confess what they've done. It's sort of like, you know, if you're an alcoholic, the first thing you have to do is admit you have a problem. You first have to confess that you have sinned. Uh, If you are truly uh, contrite and confess and admit that you have sinned, then... uh, a priest can absolve you of that sin, meaning you are, you're, you're basically forgiven by the church of that sin, then uh, you are expected to show your contrition and show your gratitude for the, for the forgiveness that's been given to you by doing a penance, some action, some sort of sacrifice or humbling action that shows your gratitude. So this could include things like reciting prayers, uh, doing a fast, you know not eating or not eating some particular food for some length of time, making a donation, giving some of your possessions uh, to the church or to the poor, or going on a pilgrimage. So going on a pilgrimage became a common mode of, of penance in Uh, especially in the 10th, 11th centuries, right? So in this time when it's starting to become uh, a bit safer to travel around, uh, pilgrimage becomes a comparatively appealing and even fun way of doing penance. Uh, People would go out on the roads, uh, sometimes barefoot, sometimes in very sort of humble Clothes. They would def- but depend on alms and charity to support them, and they would journey to some sort of sacred site. Uh, a very common one, which probably a lot of you have heard of, was uh, the resting place of St. James at Santiago uh, de Compostela. In Spain, people would sometimes walk hundreds of miles. Uh, to this to this holy site. You might do a pilgrimage to Rome. Uh, you might do a pilgrimage to places associated with saints or, or places with healing powers uh, like the baths at uh, Lourdes in France. Uh, or you might just go to some local place. You might go to a chapel or a burial site of a saint or the site of a saint's relic in a neighboring village. You know it depended on what you were capable of and how much penance you thought you needed to do. Uh, and there came to be even something of a pilgrimage industry. It became a way of of a sort of form of tourism. Uh, it was a way to see the world. Uh, and businesses like taverns and inns would cater to pilgrims uh, and could make uh, quite a bit of money serving uh, pilgrims on the roads. Uh, there were some professional pilgrims, people who basically made it their careers to travel around to... Uh, pilgrimage sites all around Europe and and see the Christian world in this way. Uh, Marjorie Kemp is an example of a medieval uh, woman who was one of these kind of professional pilgrims and she basically wrote a guidebook, much like a modern day uh, travel book uh, explaining what the good sites are and what are the good inns to stay at on the way and uh, where to go if you want to see different sorts of places or or get healing power for different kinds of illnesses. Uh, So pilgrimage was a huge part of medieval life already by 1095. Pilgrims were expected to go unarmed. Uh, You were supposed to be uh, humble and contrite and accept whatever fate uh, uh, befell you. So you were not supposed to go armed, you were not supposed to fight. And it also was very uh, taboo for anyone to attack or harm a pilgrim. And you would have to kind of depend on the kindness of strangers, so to speak, while uh, going on pilgrimage. So some of these uh, bigger pilgrimage sites included, as I said, Santiago de Compostela and Rome. Uh, some pilgrims did go to Jerusalem. Uh, there was a somewhat steady uh, stream of Western Christian pilgrims who traveled to to Jerusalem. Uh, they sometimes were called palmers because often pilgrims would take back a palm frond from the Holy Land as a sort of souvenir showing that they had gone on this holy uh, journey. Uh, most Muslim states that controlled Jerusalem at different times in the Middle Ages generally allowed Christian pilgrims to go to Jerusalem. And uh, the the Turks, uh, the Fatimid uh, dynasty, these various Muslim states uh, usually uh, allowed Christians if they would pay a fee. So they they saw that Western uh, pilgrims were a source of money, much like modern-day societies often welcome tourists if they will spend some of their money. there was a period in the sort of early and mid-1000s when the Turks were first uh, attacking these Muslim states in the Middle East and uh, there was a period of instability where it wasn't always clear who was in control of certain areas of Syria or Palestine the roads might be comparatively unsecured uh, there were uh, sort of raiders and pirates who might prey upon travelers. And so there was a period of comparative danger where it became more dangerous for Christian pilgrims to make the trek uh, down to to Jerusalem. Uh, and there was a sort of infamous incident in the year 1064 when a large uh, German pilgrimage uh, set out, To Jerusalem and were attacked by bandits and mostly massacred Uh, so this was this was taken as a sort of shocking event partly because most of the time most pilgrims could make it to Jerusalem uh, safely Uh, so there, there was this period up through about the 1060s when it was a bit more dangerous and some pilgrims were robbed or kidnapped or killed uh, while traveling to the Holy Land, uh, but by 1095, this had pretty much calmed down. You had sort of more secure, uh, settled uh, borders, uh, you had more stability in the region, and once again, it was reasonably safe uh, to travel to Jerusalem. Uh, so this, uh, this situation still can help to account for why the Pope took this drastic uh, step of actually calling for a conquest of Jerusalem. Uh, because Jerusalem uh, was a pilgrimage site. Pilgrimage was so important in the sort of fabric of European civilization. And Jerusalem was the most important uh, and most holy pilgrimage site. There was no more uh, there was no greater holy site that you could possibly visit. It was where uh, Christ had had walked and preached and died and risen from the dead all of the apostles uh, had been there it was of course uh, the great holy city of the Old Testament as well it, and it was to medieval Christians it was the center of the world as I mentioned before if you looked at uh, medieval maps of the world it was always Jerusalem at the center with the continents of Asia, Africa and Europe surrounding it so Europeans always, you know, however uh, highly they may have thought of themselves, they always saw themselves as on the fringe of the world, looking inward towards the center, which is Jerusalem, the holy site that is the point of contact between uh, the human earthly world and God and, and the divine world, the place where uh, Christ had risen from the dead. Uh, Finally, it may seem strange, considering all of these factors, that the Pope only called for a crusade in 1095. Why not earlier? Why not in this period when there was comparatively greater danger uh, to pilgrims? Well, apocalypticism was a factor as well. We certainly know it was a huge factor in how people responded to the Pope's speech, but it probably also is one of the reasons why the Pope made this speech at this council in 1095 was expectations of a coming apocalypse. So generations earlier, uh, in the years leading up to the year 1000, many people had expected that the second coming of Christ was imminent. Uh, so in in the Christian worldview, uh, they were living in the final age of humankind, which was the Christian age, and that that age would, would finally end when uh, Christ returned and judged uh, the living and the dead. And many people expected that that would actually happen in the year 1000, that there would be 1000 years of the Christian era, and then when that was up, you would, uh, you would finally have uh, the apocalypse, uh, and the final victory of Christ against Antichrist and good against evil. People woke up on New Year's Day 1000, and nothing had happened. Uh, so there was a sort of disappointment and disbelief on the part of many people that, uh, that the second coming didn't arrive and that thing seemed to be going on the same as before now not surprisingly many people asked why and they turned their minds to Jerusalem uh, to the center of the world and the place where naturally Christ would probably return because that's where he had died and resurrected and they said well Jerusalem is in non-christian hands so could Christ reappear uh, and take up rulership of the world surrounded by, by enemies as they saw it? So an explanation that a lot of people turned to was that uh, in order for the Second Coming to happen, Christ had to return among friends. Jerusalem had to be in Christian hands. Uh, and from there people began to speculate, well, maybe a second coming is still possible once we have recaptured Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is once again a Christian city. So 1095 was actually a very opportune moment to call for uh, an expedition to retake Jerusalem because it implied that the second coming could happen in 1100, the next big sort of round number year if by that time the Christians held Jerusalem. And that was clearly the subtext that many people read into, uh, into the Pope's message that uh, the second coming, the way will be prepared for the second coming if we hold Jerusalem in 1100. Okay, with all of this being said, it was still an enormous gamble for Pope Urban to call for this expedition uh, to a largely unknown distant land with hundreds of miles of desert and mountains in between and hostile territory, hostile armies, uh, and somehow defeat uh, the defending forces uh, thousands of miles away. So what did the Pope say? how did he get this movement underway? well again we don't know precisely what he said. Uh, He didn't preserve a written record of his speech and no one copied it down verbatim at the time rather people recalled it later, uh, usually a few years later and the accounts of the speech are not entirely consistent Uh, So we have to go with our best guesses based on the evidence we do have. It's pretty clear that he decried violence that the Islamic rulers were supposedly perpetrating against pilgrims and against the Christian residents of the Holy Land. Now we have to remember the Crusades conquered Uh, large swaths of Syria, Armenia, Palestine, and the city of Jerusalem. Those areas were all still majority Christian at this time. Islamic rulers did not prioritize conversion of their subject peoples, and they did not consider conversion by force to be legitimate. And so uh, conversion of people who had been conquered by Muslim uh, states was very slow and very gradual, and at this time in the 11th century, most Middle Eastern people in these areas like Syria and Palestine were still Christian. Okay, They were Syrian Christian, Armenian Christian, Greek Christian, various uh, sorts. So this was a case of, of largely Christian areas being ruled by Islamic governments and a, a Muslim uh, ruling class. And uh, the Pope and his closest supporters, portrayed this Muslim rule as tyrannical and violent. Uh, His speech probably decried uh, atrocities that the Muslims were often accused of, such as forced circumcisions. They claimed that uh, Christian prisoners were brought into churches forced to undergo circumcision, women were raped, uh, and that uh, blood from these atrocities were used to desecrate Christian altars. Uh, This was all probably false or maybe was massively exaggerated from a few minor uh, incidents from, and a few minor incidents from decades earlier. This sort of violence that might have sometimes been associated with conquering Christian areas uh, had basically been calm for, for several decades. He talked about the, the desecration of Jerusalem and particularly of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, the very sacred church which uh, houses the site of Christ's supposed tomb. Uh, and he called for something like an armed pilgrimage. It's hard to say whether he used that phrase exactly, we don't know. But he basically uh, overthrew the accepted rules and precedents of canon law and said that uh, Christian warriors should take up arms and go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Uh, This was practically a contradiction in terms according to the ideas of the time. Pilgrims were supposed to be unarmed and nonviolent. But in the Pope's argument, uh, Jerusalem itself and the Christians in the East were under threat of violence and tyranny. And so, pilgrims going to the Holy City should be armed in order to defend the Holy City itself and in order to defend the Christians who lived there. He told them to take up the cross and used this phrase uh, from the Gospels. Uh, so he, in, in, his, uh, in his portrayal, the people who would go on this armed pilgrimage were actually making a sacrifice. They were uh, putting themselves in danger. They were giving up their comfort uh, at home, giving up their power at home, and going out, uh, to serve the cause of Christ and Christianity, and he urged them to go out on the road. Right? He uses this, this imagery of journeying out as warriors on the road, and this clearly was evoking uh, chivalric uh, heroism and the idea of the, the heroic knight-errant which at this time was being increasingly celebrated and enshrined in the chanson de geste, the epic stories of deeds of great knights like El Cid or Arthur and the Round Table and so forth. So, uh, so he was offering a new kind of opportunity to the Western Christian knights of that time, that, that uh, even as they were being increasingly discouraged and restricted, from fighting against each other and fighting in Europe. They had this opportunity to go out and fight in a faraway place, to go on adventures, to show their heroism, their chivalric uh, self-sacrifice, and do so uh, as pious Christians and in service of Christianity. Now, probably a lot of people Certainly many people have said, and you may have heard over the course of time, that people went on crusade because they were offered an indulgence, meaning that their sins would be forgiven. That is not accurate. There's no evidence that the Pope said that. Rather, what he said, what we, what we know of from the existing records of the Council of Clermont, is something that makes a lot more sense in the context of the religious beliefs of that time so there's no written record of this the speech itself but there are the proceedings of the council which show us uh, that the Pope uh, at before the closing of the council so probably around the time he made this big speech uh, declared uh, used his papal authority to declare quote Whoever might set forth to Jerusalem to liberate the church of God can substitute that journey for all penance. So remember, penance is so enormously important in medieval Christianity. People are uh, giving up tons of money and time and work to do penance and to show their, their piety and their contrition for their sins in this medieval church. And one way of doing penance was going on pilgrimage. So what the Pope declares here basically is you can put aside all those other acts of penance that you might otherwise be performing. The donations, the fasts, the prayers and all of that can be substituted for one big act of penance which is taking up the cross and going out on the road to Jerusalem. So this is what is sometimes technically called an indulgence, and an indulgence doesn't mean your sins get forgiven, right? Your sins get forgiven because you confess and you are contrite. Uh, Rather, uh, an indulgence is an act of penance that can substitute or stand in for some other act that you might have been assigned or that might normally be customary, right? It's It's one act of penance that's allowed to take the place of another. And this, uh, this indulgence for the crusaders was all your penances can all be uh, dropped in favor of this one big act of penance. So what the Pope was calling for was, again, an armed pilgrimage, something totally new and different and outside of normal church customs, and he was offering an indulgence. This one uh, uh, act of penance could substitute for all others. And so this is why, properly speaking, the Crusades were not a holy war. That's not exactly what the Pope or the Church was proposing. But they were, uh, the, Pope Urban was uh, putting forward this armed pilgrimage as a kind of penitential warfare. Right? Warfare had normally be considered sinful, but in this case it would be Penitential. It would be an act of sacrifice to undertake this uh, armed expedition on behalf of protecting Jerusalem and protecting the Christians in the East. So, this seems to be basically the meat of what the Pope said. Uh, the, the Eastern Christians are under attack, the holy sites are being desecrated, and it is now the duty of Christian fighting men to take up the cross and go out and, in an act of penitential warfare, journey to Jerusalem and, and retake Jerusalem for Christ. Okay. So, considering all the reasons why this was a strange and extreme and risky uh, idea, it was probably quite uncertain how people would react. Uh And the Pope had to put all of his persuasive and rhetorical power into this speech to get people excited and get this movement launched. Reportedly, as soon as he was done, and the chroniclers are quite consistent about this, as soon as he was done, many knights who were observing the council stood up and declared Deus vult, God wills it. So there was this immediate enormous enthusiasm and confidence in the crusade message. Was this entirely spontaneous? Uh, It's also very possible that the Pope had strategically put out the word to certain knights and nobles that he knew would be sympathetic that they should stand up and chant Deus Volt as soon as his speech was over. So it certainly may have been pre-planned and staged. But nonetheless, it uh, immediately caused tremendous enthusiasm. Uh, A noble who supported the Pope's message stood up, went up to to the makeshift stage where the Pope had delivered his his speech, knelt before the Pope, and asked... uh, to take up the cross basically asked the Pope's uh, blessing and, and support in his setting out on this mission to Jerusalem now uh, conveniently there was a seamstress on hand right there in the front row with a cloth cross already cut out who walked up to this nobleman and sewed the cross on his shoulder uh, this mimicked what had been done before by many pilgrims who would affix affix some sort of holy uh, image or object to their clothes to show that they were pilgrims on a pilgrimage. And in this case, uh, this knight was taking up the cross by having this seamstress sew the cloth cross to his shoulder uh, and showed that in a sense he was on the one hand a pilgrim and on the other hand he was a warrior uh, venturing out to fight in service to his lord who in this case was Christ. So it's sort of combining the imagery of pilgrimage with the imagery of, of knighthood uh, and chivalric warfare together at once. And once this had happened, then a whole flood of knights and nobles, as well as churchmen, uh, rushed up uh, to take up the cross as well. It became sort of a frenzy, and seamstresses had to be pulled out of all corners to sew... Uh, cloth crosses onto their garb uh, as they sort of formed this initial uh, crusading army. The word of the Pope's call for an expedition to Jerusalem quickly fanned out from Clermont. So, uh, So on the one hand, the Pope continued his speaking tour around France and spoke at several more uh, church gatherings around France preaching this crusade. But at the same time, uh, the movement kind of took on a life of its own, beyond the Pope's control. Self-appointed messengers, many of them simple commoners, uh, you know minor merchants, tradesmen, pilgrims, ventured out, all over France and then into Germany and the Low Countries and Italy, spreading the word of what the Pope had said and calling on men and women to support this armed pilgrimage. Some of them by joining it, by taking up arms, some of them by giving food or money or supplies, but in whatever way that was, in, was within their power, uh, supporting this grand mission. It's worth mentioning at this point that uh, the word crusade didn't exist yet, right? So I've been using that word, and it's sort of uh, unavoidable because we need a shorthand to talk about this, this movement. But at the time, people simply called it the pilgrimage or the movement. Uh, it was seen as a, a penitential act, an act of sacrifice for the sake of Christ and the Eastern Christians. Uh, it's only in in later years, almost hundred years later, that people coined the word crusade to to label this type of this type of armed pilgrimage. So word of the pilgrimage and the movement that the Pope was calling for to retake Jerusalem uh, spread like wildfire. And the courses of enthusiasm ended up, Splitting into two basic streams. So on the one hand, you had a great number of knightly recruits of armed, trained noblemen from particularly from France, who uh, took up the cross. France had traditionally had a special relationship with the papacy. It goes right back to, uh, to Charles Martel and to Charlemagne and his uh, protection of the Pope against the Lombards, there was this kind of special long-standing alliance between France and, and the papacy. And naturally, uh, the Pope's vision and the Pope's word carried enormous weight among these often very powerful uh, ruling nobles, in, in, especially in central and southern France, where Uh, where Pope Urban preached his series of sermons. Uh, So you get a fairly organized, well-equipped, comparatively well-prepared army organizing itself in this winter of 1095-96, to mostly in France. On the other hand, you also get an outpouring of popular enthusiasm, and self-organized peasants and commoners uh, joining the crusade movement, mainly in northern Europe. So northern France, the Netherlands, northern Germany. uh, In these areas, you have a more kind of decentralized, uh, chaotic, uh, popular uh, upswell of crusading passion. There was no particular leader uh, planning this movement in the way the Pope did in, in his councils in France. However, the most prominent preacher who seems to have driven a lot of the movement was called Peter the Hermit. Uh, we don't know exactly who he was, but he was a person uh, we don't know exactly where he came from. There's It's, it's very sketchy. But he traveled around in 10, 95, 96, 97 around northern Europe uh, preaching uh, the the mission to Jerusalem. He traveled barefoot and in very plain, crude clothes. He reportedly didn't eat bread or meat uh, which was seen as, as being kind of a holy or penitential diet to restrict to restrict your diet. However, he did consume fish and wine. So, you know, he wasn't actually all that ascetic, uh, but it seems as if he may have eaten fish and wine because those are foods associated with Christ and Christ's miracles. He gathered around himself people who had been sinners, particularly repentant prostitutes. Uh, again, clearly in, in imitation uh, of Christ and sort of borrowing... Uh, the holiness of of Christ as a humble figure who redeems common sinners. So Peter the Hermit uh, gathered around himself a kind of cult of enthusiastic followers who uh, charged through the countryside around Northern Europe, uh, drumming up uh, passion and support for the armed pilgrimage. There were reportedly many signs and miracles seen uh, in Europe at this time, which people interpreted as uh, signs of the importance and the legitimacy of the Pope's crusade. Things like uh, comets and unusual objects in the sky, earthquakes, uh, strange insects, uh, animals behaving in strange ways, and these sort of anomalies, uh, as often happened, were taken to be signs or miracles. Uh, encouraging people to believe in the crusade movement. So by about the end of 1096 we have a serious movement or or you might say two very serious and very different movements that were effectively gathering force uh, and preparing to launch the expedition to Jerusalem. The uh, the sort of popular movement that we saw in northern Europe gradually uh, gathers together into large sort of makeshift peasant armies that set out from France and the Low Countries and Western Germany and set out to the east in expectation of eventually uh, gathering at Constantinople where they can then uh, proceed to Jerusalem. One of the first things they do is they attack Jews. So there was a significant Jewish population at this time in the Rhineland area, the area that's now kind of Western Germany and the borders of Germany and France. And many of these sort of uh, peasant crowds that were preparing to set out uh, on the Crusade uh, believed that they should first uh, they should first confront, the so-called enemies of Christ in their own midst before they set out to uh, fight the enemies of Christ off in the Holy Land. So they went into towns and cities like Speyer that had Jewish populations and mainly they would demand that the Jews convert and take baptism as Christians. and. This was not entirely surprising, considering that it was a widespread Christian belief that the Jews had to uh, accept Christ before the Second Coming could happen, that this was one of the final steps towards the Apocalypse and the Second Coming, the conversion of the Jews. So they demanded that Jews convert. Uh, Some did, some refused, some fled, uh, and of those who refused, uh, many were killed. And their goods and money were requisitioned uh, and taken by these crusading crowds. So the attacks on Jews could serve as a way of of sort of solidifying and hardening these makeshift armies, uh, preparing to become fighting forces. It was a way of identifying an enemy and practicing violence against those enemies. And it also was secondarily, a way of getting money uh, and, and goods uh, to, to prepare them for this journey to the Holy Land. Uh, and some of the Jews who survived these attacks are, are groups of Jews that preemptively bribed the Crusaders. Sometimes they could offer money and food and supplies in return for, for, for safety, uh, but in some cases they were simply killed anyway and their money uh, was then taken. So, uh so we have these two movements already launched by uh the end of 1096. We have sort of Peter the Hermit's uh popular enthusiastic movement in northern Europe. We have more of an organized, noble-led, more disciplined uh army forming in uh central and southern France. And uh these two groups separately set out on their various routes eastward with the intention of reconnoitering at Constantinople and uh, as they set out uh, to the east uh, people have to come up with ways of talking about this totally new unprecedented bizarre movement who are these people what are they trying to do and the armies came fairly quickly to be referred to as Franks. Uh, so remember Frank is, is, is the name of an old uh, Germanic people that had invaded the Roman Empire and set up the Frankish Empire under, uh, under Charlemagne being the most famous Frankish uh, ruler. And, uh, and so many of these crusaders came heavily from France and came from the sort of old nobility of France, uh, and their main common language that they spoke was medieval French. And so they came to be called Franks in contrast to uh, the, pe- the Eastern peoples, Greeks and Syrians and so forth that they were going to encounter in the East. So these two different groups of Franks uh, set out to the East uh, with the goal of getting... Uh, housing and weapons and supplies and so forth at Constantinople Uh, and from there not simply fighting on behalf of the Emperor but setting out into the Holy Land with the goal of attaining Jerusalem so uh, what I'll talk about in later lectures is what actually happens in the Crusades and what happens when these masses of probably hundreds of thousands of francs start pouring in to the capital at Constantinople. So today when we look back at the Crusades, at the strange ideas about miracles and prodigies, uh, when we look at the attacks on Jews, when we look at the eventual uh, violence, of the conquest of Jerusalem, it can be very easy to sort of push them away and say "Oh, those were medieval people, they were prejudiced or hateful or narrow-minded in a way that we are not today. But it's important to remember that when this movement was launched it was not because someone appealed to people's baser Instincts, uh, their bloodlust, or, or religious hatred. It really worked by appealing to their highest ideals, right? Their sense of self-sacrifice, uh, their desire to protect uh, the innocent, to protect the victims of tyranny, and really very well calibrated uh, propaganda played on these sort of higher ideals and impulses that led so many people to join uh, this movement and so we have to be very careful of sort of sneering and saying oh those people in the past are so unlike us especially at a time when we in the United States have been at war in the Middle East for off and on for more than 25 years now and when so many military actions are justified using this rhetoric of protecting the innocent, protecting the victims of tyranny, uh, spreading our ideals, Uh, we should be very careful of thinking that we are so much smarter or more enlightened uh, than people, uh, these people almost a thousand years ago. So that's why I think it's very important to fully understand what the Crusades were really and where they came from and what sort of aspects of human nature played into uh, into the Crusades. So uh, in future lectures I will talk more about how the Crusades actually worked and what happened and uh, if you like uh, these lectures. You can find uh, all of them on on Stitcher and SoundCloud and iTunes and hopefully eventually on YouTube and please uh, take a look at my Patreon page also under Historiansplaining and your support would be tremendously welcome in keeping these lectures coming and if you have any questions or topics you want me to address email me at historiansplaining at gmail.com.